Um, I had 10 questions written out this morning. I have 15 <laughs> uh, by this afternoon. So uh, the, this technique uh, is, is helpful. And I'm going to try to answer them. I'm going to have to try to be a little bit brief so that uh, we have time for the last of these uh, lectures on the Our Father and the way in which some Christian mystics have understood the Our Father. But the questions are fascinating. Uh, some of them will be hard to answer, and I'll probably just say, well, I'm really not sure I can give the answer to that, particularly if they involve comparisons of Christianity with other traditions. I've studied other traditions, but especially Jewish mysticism and, to a lesser extent, Sufi mysticism. I don't really pretend to know the Eastern mystical traditions very well at all. And so I usually will shy away from questions like that because I just don't have the knowledge. And um, I hope you'll excuse me, but that's the way it is. First question, an easy one. How can mysticism help the world today? <laughs> There's a short answer and a long answer. I'm going to give the short answer. It can help you to love your neighbor better. <laughs> The long answer, that is how you spell that out, and it would, uh, that's another course. <laughs> so, uh, second question. Um, on Théo de Sardin, how would his worldview have been seen uh, uh, by the great mystics and their holy intoxication? I think of Théo de Sardin as one of the great modern mystics, one of the great 20th century uh, mystics. And I've even written on, uh, you know, who are the mystical figures of the 20th century that perhaps give us some hints about the 21st century. And I include people like Simon Weil and Teilhard de Chardin, Thomas Merton in a certain way. Uh, and if we go back a little bit further, you know, uh, Therese of Lisseux, for example. So there are 20th century figures, and I think Teilhard is a great cosmic mystic, if one wants to use that, you know, seeing God within the world and the world as the manifestation or theophany of God uh, and his mass over the world and various other texts, I think, are major mystical texts. And I think of mysticism as what ties Teilhard's thought together. He was a scientist. He was, in a certain way, a theologian. He was a literary figure. But the heart of Teilhard, for me at least, is a mystic vision, a Christian mystic vision of, uh, of the world and its relationship to God from a very evolutionary perspective. Another question. Is it fair to say that all the mystics that you have spoken about did actually have an actual experience, a mystical experience of God? I, I think so. And the testimony of their writings are what convinces me of that. No one has access to another person's inner consciousness. What we know about their inner consciousness is what they've chosen to communicate. But the great mystical figures that I've used, and many others as well, of course, those expressions uh, give me trust in the fact that they had indeed had mystical experiences or moments of mystical consciousness or uh, some kind of direct uh, contact with God. Could you say a little bit about the relationship between Meister Eckhart and the Beguines, if there is any? There is certainly a relationship between Eckhart and the Beguines. The Beguines were independent women religious. 
that we find from the late 12th through the 13th century and on in, during the course of the centuries. That is, they were women who lived a dedicated religious life, but not under a religious rule. They banded together in small groups in houses, worshiped in their local churches, supported themselves by their work, uh, frequently you know, uh, weaving and spinning cloth and different things like that. But they had a deep inner devotion to Christ in the Eucharist, to mystical prayer, and, uh, and the like. They're an explosive phenomenon of the 13th century. You find them all over Europe. They were controversial to some extent because they didn't live under established rules and they didn't observe cloister. They were out in the world. And many institutional figures and clerics said, oh, these beggings are dangerous because they're not cloistered. <laughs> Women are supposed to be cloistered. Um, but they had many supporters. Among the mendicant orders, Franciscans and Dominicans, and some begging houses or begging groups eventually grew into religious houses, usually of Dominican nuns. They were all over Europe in the Europe that Eckhart was preaching to. He was in Strasbourg for 10 years, and there were like, I forget how many, 25 begging communities in Strasbourg. So much of Eckhart's, or a good deal, of Eckhart's preaching would have been given to Beguines, and he occasionally uh, mentions that. There is a debate among scholars, and I'm not going to go into that, over how far Eckhart's message might have been influenced by some of the Beguine mystics, because they were Beguine mystics. Marguerite Poret, uh, Mechthild of Magdeburg, uh, Hadwig of, Ant uh, of Antwerp. Uh, and they were some of the most important 13th century mystics and Eckhart may have had contact with some of their ideas. Lots been written on that. As a matter of fact, I edited a book back in 1996, first edition, Meister Eckhart and the Begging Mystics, in which a number of scholars uh, devoted uh, papers to that. It's published by Con uh, Continuum, if you want to get a little bit more on the question. Um, next question. <laughs> I was wanting clarification on the topic of positive and negative, um, presence and absence of God, or us, our role in mystical experience. In mystical experience. <clears throat> I believe in the gift grace to see, but not to, I'm not sure what to make of the absence of God. Not to, well, the whole notion of the absence of God is difficult. Uh, but the absence of God is not like other kinds of absences, the way an object may not be absent to us, because we know God is also always present. But the sense that we're not finding God in our lives at this present time is an important part of the mystical path for many of the mystics that we talk about, because it, what it teaches them is, if God is absent, but I still have a tremendous desire for God, that tension is instructive in the difference between ourselves and our desires and, and God's presence. So that's a short answer to a complicated question, but reading the mystics who've experienced the absence of God is, I think, a very a kind of salutary experience uh, and a learning uh, implement, if you will, for our own, uh, our own religious path, our own spiritual path. Um, do you see any connection between the use of the Enneagram and deepening spiritual practices? If so, how? I don't know. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know much about the Enneagram. I know it exists. 
what would Meister Eckhart say about give us this day our daily bread? Uh, Eckhart wrote a brief commentary in Latin on the Our Father. I haven't read it in a long time, but I think he sees that in a very general fashion, if I recall. That is, give us all the gifts that you give us. Um, at least that's the way I recall what he said. <clears throat> What's the role of concentration and samadhi in Christian mysticism? Is it like Hindu yoga and Buddhist Theravada meditation? Again, I really can't answer that, but let me make just uh, one, one comment. Uh, Meister Eckhart lends himself to ecumenical comparisons, particularly with Buddhism, because Eckhart's notion of emptiness and uh, detachment and letting go and his notion of, uh, I pray God to free me from God. You know, I pray God to free me from the false idea of God. There are many uh, resonances, uh, parallels between that and certain things in, in Eckhart's, uh, certain things in Buddhist uh, teaching. And there is a whole school of writers who have touched on the relationships between Eckhart and, and Buddhism. Eckhart was not a Buddhist. I think I can guarantee that. <laughs> but I think it's very worthwhile making comparisons of Eckhart to other traditions, to certain Sufi traditions, Ibn al-Arabi, to certain Jewish traditions, such as things we find in the Zohar, to uh, certain uh, Hindu traditions. Rudolf Otto wrote a book comparing Eckhart and Shankara, and particularly to the big literature on Eckhart, the, the, the parallels and the interesting analogies between Eckhart and, uh, and Buddhism. Um, one of the major Eckhart scholars, he was originally German but wound up in the US, now deceased, Rainer Schulman, was a, um, a, a Zen priest and wrote some very interesting articles on Eckhart's relationship to Buddhism. Well, what's the re relationship between mystics and the belief in predestination? <coughs> Complicated uh, th theological issue. I really can't answer it in direct fashion. I would say this. Eckhart uh, was a Christian theologian who believed in predestination, but who would always, I think, say that we usually think about God predestining in the wrong way because that involves thinking that God is doing something beforehand and there is no beforehand for God. What God is doing is calling all people in the present now of eternity uh, to reach the goal in life. Uh, and he doesn't talk a lot about predestination uh, in the course of his writings. Okay, we're getting there. We only have a few left. <clears throat> if all prayer is in and through Christ, then what about Sufis and non-Christian mystics? Are they praying through Christ uh, unknowingly or in another way? Well, that reflects on something that uh, Lawrence and I were, uh, were talking about, uh, ecumenism. And uh, you know, the, the, the fact is that one answer would be, well, they're anonymous Christians. Um, I'm not comfortable with that, with that answer because I don't think they would like to be called anonymous Christians. Do I think that, uh, that Sufis and non-Christian mystics are directing their prayer to God? I do indeed, but in complicated ways conditioned by their traditions and their context in the same way that we as Christians do. Um, and is the concept of apatheia similar or the same as the Buddhist notion of equanimity? 
Maybe. <laughs> Again, I, I just don't know enough, but I'd like to think there are, there are interesting similarities. <clears throat> okay, uh, the, last, uh, the last of these talks, I want to take the most familiar of Christian prayers. We pray it every day, very often. The Our Father and try to expound it as a deeply mystical prayer. And we may not think about it as a mystical prayer. <clears throat> but the great mystics have commented on the Our Father, and so I'm gonna just, I'm gonna choose uh, four of these. <clears throat> Excuse me, I've been talking too much. Two from the patristic period and, and two from Middle Ages and early uh, modernity. Um, but I'd like to start with a modern mystic and just read an, a very interesting text. Many of you may know this text. It's from Simone Weil and her book, Waiting for God. <clears throat> Last summer, I think the summer was 1941, doing Greek with T, whoever T was, I don't know, I went through the Our Father word for word in Greek. We went and we promised each other to learn it by heart. I do not think he ever did so, but some weeks later, as I was turning over the pages of the gospel, I said to myself that since I had promised to do this thing and it was good, I ought to do it, and I did it. The infinite sweetness of this Greek text took so hold of me that for several days I could not stop from saying it over and over and over again. Since that time, I've made it a practice of saying it through once each morning with absolute attention absolute attention. If during the recitation my attention wanders or goes to sleep in the minutest degree, I begin again until I have once again succeeded in going through it with absolutely pure attention. The effect of this practice is extraordinary and surprises me every time, for although I experience it each day, it exceeds my expectation at each repetition. At times, the very first words tear my thoughts from my body and transport it to a place outside time where there is neither perspective nor point of view. The infinity of the ordinary expanses of perception is replaced by an infinity of the second or sometimes third degree. At the same time, filling every part of this infinity of infinity, there is a silence. A silence which is not an absence of sound, but which is the object of a positive sensation more positive than that of sound. Noises, if there are any, only reach me after crossing this silence. She concludes very briefly. Sometimes also during this recitation or at other moments, Christ is present with me in person but his presence is infinitely more real, more moving, more clear than on that first occasion when he took possession of me. The first occasion is recounted earlier in Waiting for God, and many of you will have read that. But here's a wonderful 20th century witness to the Our Father as a mystical prayer, uh, in which uh, uh, Simone Weil's whole intentionality is transformed in a very unique fashion, and in which Christ becomes present to her. So, 
as true in the 20th century and in the 21st century, so it is true in the earlier tradition. And I'll try to uh, talk a little bit about that in relationship to our mystics. The Our Father, the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples, exists in three versions, actually. Uh, there's a, uh, one version in Matthew 6. There's another version in Luke 11. And another early Christian writing that's really contemporary with the, uh, with the New Testament, the Didache, uh, chapter 8 of the Didache, also contains a somewhat different version. The fact that they're different shouldn't bother us. That's the transmission. But the fact that the Our Father exists in these three closely related but slightly different versions is an indication that the prayer went back to Jesus and was remembered in slightly different ways by different, uh, different communities. And uh, my colleague at Chicago, uh, biblical New Testament scholar Hans Dieter Betz, has a very large book on the Sermon on the Mount, of course, in which the, uh, the uh, uh, synoptic versions are included. And he includes, he includes in there a long excursus on the Lord's Prayer, which if you want to read more about the biblical basis and the comparison of the different versions and how they're rooted in Jewish prayer forms, but also uh, reformulate the Jewish forms, you could go and read uh, uh, Hans-Dieter Betz's uh, lengthy commentary. The history of commentary in the Our Father shows that it has often been taken as the prayer that best reveals the deepest dimensions of Christian praying. And so a study of some of these commentaries, and of course there are so many commentaries on the Our Father, study of some of these commentaries, not all of them are mystical, but many of them are, are mystical, I think provides us with food for thought, provides us with ammunition to use, with uh, things to prepare us for praying the Our Father. I mean, to take one or the other of these commentaries, and they tend not to be terribly long, and to really study it I think gives us a new sense when we pray it of what we can be praying for in these few short, you know, uh, uh, sentences. Patristic use of the Our Father, that is the patristic, uh, the early Christian fathers, from uh, quite uh, early on, you know, seized on the Our Father and wrote commentaries on it, as we might expect. The earliest explicit commentary comes in Tertullian, the North, North African father. He wrote a treatise on prayer. It's the earliest uh, explicit treatise on Christian prayer from about the year 200. And he has a commentary on the Our Father in sections 2 to 9. It's a kind of external comment about how the Christian should conduct himself and act while he's praying the prayer. So it's not what I would call a mystical commentary. A few years later, 233 or 34, the text that I talked about, uh, uh, Origins Treatise on Prayer, the De Orationia Peru case, contains a much deeper and mystical reading in its chapters 18 through 29. And I will talk uh, about that in a little more detail. But other fathers also uh, seized on the Our Father. No, the Northern African uh, Bishop of Carthage, Cyprian, who's martyred in the year 252, gives a short reading, commentary, uh, in which the unity of believers is emphasized. Cyprian notes that Jesus did not command his disciples to say, 
my Father who art in heaven. He said, say, our Father who art in heaven. And he didn't command us to say, give me this day our daily bread, but give us our daily bread. So Cyprian emphasizes that this is the prayer of the church, which we pray as individual voices, but not alone, not just for us. We're praying as ecclesia. I'll quote him. The God of peace, the teacher of harmony, who taught unity, will that each one should pray for all, according as he carried us all in himself. And uh, our friend Cyprian sees the Our Father as not only uh, uh, a prayer about our adoption as children of God, all of us, but also as a compendium of Christian faith. And he emphasizes the eschatological dimension of the prayer. We're praying you know, that heaven may be realized on earth and we eventually reach that heaven. It's a very short uh, uh, treatise. It's uh, you know, maybe eight or 10 pages long and there is an English translation. Uh, it's a very beautiful little treatise. Uh, but you could say it's more an ecclesiological treatise uh, and an eschatological treatise than a mystical treatise. Lots of other fathers, Ambrose, Gregory of Nyssa, John Chrysostom, Augustine. Augustine never wrote a formal commentary, but he obviously talks about the Our Father all over, uh, well, often in his writings. He wrote an early work on the Sermon on the Mount. And obviously in the Sermon on the Mount, he talks about the Our Father. Later on in his life as a bishop, in the, about the year 415, he wrote a series of homilies on the handing over of the Our Father. You know, the catechumens during Lent went through a process of, of education and Christian belief, and they often got handed over the creed, well, handed over traditio. They were given the creed that they could learn. Well, one of the ceremonies was handing over the Our Father. And Augustine preached four sermons as they were given the Our Father prayer, explaining to them what this prayer meant and how important it was for them. And Cassian's Collation, uh, number nine, as I mentioned the last time, also contains a brief commentary. So I, I want to talk about Origen and more briefly about Cassian and what they have to tell us about the Our Father. And then I'll jump ahead uh, many centuries, 10 centuries, to a, a medieval mystic of the 14th century that probably you've never heard of, a man called Gerhard Appelmans. And then I'm going to conclude with Teresa of Avila, who wrote a, a fairly long and, and fascinating commentary on the Our Father to expose the meaning of the text to her nuns in the Carmelite reform. <clears throat> So, first of all, Origen. <clears throat> Origen's view of the Our Father may be described as fundamentally Christological, with the phrases of the prayer indicating the gradual process of divinization that we are gaining through our oneness with Christ in the Church. So it's, uh, it's a process, the Our Father indicates the kind of divinizing process that we are gaining through Christ's action. And we gain that because we are members of Christ's body. There's also a good deal of practical moral teaching in Origen's uh, commentary. By the way, it takes up about 43 
144 pages in modern English uh, translation. So it's, uh, you know, it's not terribly long, but this, there's a kind of substance to it. And a number of the petitions in the Our Father, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, and lead us not into temptation. You know, Arjun gives practical, moral meanings to that in teaching. But the fundamentals of Arjun's interpretation I would describe as, uh, as mystical. So you have chapters 18 through uh, 29 in the treatise on prayer. And uh, when he talks about the first petition, our Father in heaven, Arjun notes that that phrase, the particular phrase, is not really found in Old Testament prayers, but he feels it's a phrase that we can use, our Father in heaven, because of the new and secure status that Christians have as adopted sons of God, which of course is, is crucial in the New Testament, especially in the Pauline texts. So we are adopted in Christ, and we are now sons and daughters of God, so we can pray to a common father, our father, he says. They, the saints, he means the real Christians, they are an image of an image, since the son is the image. And they model his sonship by being conformed not only to Christ's glorious body, but also to the one earthly body, that is, the body of the church. These are the sort of people who can say, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. And although the being of God is distinct from everything created, he goes on to claim those who do not share his being, God's being, nonetheless have a certain glory of God and his power, and they are, so to speak, an emanation of the Godhead. So you already get this, uh, this theme of, of divinization that's present there. We are adopted children of God in Christ, who is the true child of God. And so we have a status in which we can address God in a new, in a new way as, uh, as Father. When you come to the phrase, thy kingdom come, Origen extends this relationship to Christ because Christ is the kingdom. When we say, Our, thy kingdom come, we're asking the Father to make Christ more present in us. Christ dwells within us as the kingdom that gives us the power to perform deeds of, of righteousness. So, you know, we often, when we're praying, thy kingdom come, think of this externally, and that's one meaning, certainly, of the prayer. Arjun says, but the kingdom that you're praying for is the kingdom within, and that kingdom is Christ in, uh, in his kingdom. Um, the practice of virtue is what puts us on the road to deeper and deeper recognition of the kingdom of God within us. Again, I'll quote just a, a one passage here. We are on the road to being perfect. If straining forward to what lies ahead, we forget what lies behind. As we make continual progress, the highest points of the kingdom of God will be established in us when the apostle's word is fulfilled. Therefore, let us pray constantly with the character of being divinized by the word, and let us say to our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name and your kingdom come. So that whole phrase, hallowed be thy name and your kingdom come, for ours is an expression of our solidarity with Christ 
That is our divinization. We are being divinized by being members of Christ's kingdom. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, Archon is typical to his interpretative model, gives you a number of reasons for heaven, a number of different readings for heaven and earth. The most important mystical reading is to see on earth as indicating the union we enjoy with God now, which is the beginning of the perfect union we're going to have in heaven. So, so here's what we can call the eschatological dimension of his reading. It both expresses our divinization in the present, but also our hope and our progress towards the, uh, towards the heavenly, uh, heavenly kingdom. Give us today our daily bread. Arjun has a long comment that emphasizes that daily bread is not corporeal bread. It's the bread of life that Christ promised his followers, particularly in the sixth chapter of John's Gospel. Here's how he puts it. The true bread is he who nourishes the true man made in the image of God, and the one who is nourished by it shall come to be in the likeness of him who created him. Daily bread, for origin, signifies as the, li the living bread that's given daily to our being to enhance it so that we can become true sons of God by eating the living bread that is nothing else but the tree of life. So here Arjun's putting together you know, the image of the tree of life from the Genesis account and the living bread that Christ talks about in John 6, saying they are the same thing. They are actually Christ. Many of the uh, patristic authors, when they comment on the paradise account and they talk about the tree of life, see the tree of life as a symbol or an image of Christ to come because Christ is the, is, the true, is the true life. Towards the end of his commentary, um, Arjun confronts the phrase, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And he notes this seems to contain a kind of uh, paradox or contradiction. How can we pray not to be brought into temptation when we know that all of life is a temptation? And he cites a text from the book of Job about whole of life being a trial or a temptation. So Arjun wrestles with this problem. You know, he often wrestles with the seeming contradictions in scripture. I mean, that's part of the whole tradition of, ex of exegesis. One text seems to say one thing. Another text seems to say another thing. How do you put these uh, together? How do we pray, lead us not into temptation, when we know life must involve temptation? Arjun's answer is this solution is this. Therefore, let us pray to be delivered from temptation, not by avoiding temptation, but by not being defeated when we are tempted. Later in this section, he makes valuable comments on the role of temptation in the Christian life, basically saying that temptation is necessary for the Christian. It's necessary because it always induces humility. And it brings us to self-knowledge, that is the recognition of our continuing need for God. What our soul has received from God escapes everyone's knowledge but God's, even our own, Origen says. It becomes evident through temptations, so we can no longer escape the knowledge of what we are, are, really, are really like. So temptation tells us about our own weakness, our need for God, the necessity for continuing humility, 
and leads us to turn to God in petition to aid us in the midst of, uh, of temptation. So when you read through, I've just given you this very brief summary of what Origen says about the Our Father. I think it's a deft combination of teaching about daily Christian practice, including what you do as you're tempted, but also fundamentally it's a message about mysticism as divinization through our adoption as sons of God in Christ's body, the body of the church. And in that sense, it's a very you know, cohesive uh, interpretation of the Our Father, which both gives us, as I said, practical advice, but also a deep theological, mystical message about theosis. We are being divinized. And what we're praying when we pray the Our Father is an expression of our belief in our divinization, our ongoing divinization process. Cashin. Cashin's uh, interpretation in, uh, in Conference 9 is much shorter. And Cashin must have read Origen. There are some uh, similarities, uh, certainly. And as I mentioned, um, Cashin is writing for monks, primarily. Um, but aspects of Cashin's message can also be, I think, adopted to, uh, to non-monastics. I'll touch on only a few points because I want to spend more time with, uh, with Teresa, especially at the end. So, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Cashin says, we address God as adopted sons, and we speak of him as being in heaven in order to express our longing to go to heaven. So for him, it's, it's, it's eschatological. He recognized the Our Father here as a universal prayer, so it's not just for monks, it's for all Christians. And he expresses the belief that thy kingdom come means, first of all, that in each day Christ should reign among holy men. It should be, again, it's a little bit like origin there in that sense. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It's interesting. Cashin says, what else is this if not a declaration that men should be like angels? <laughs> Your will be done. Uh, and that's very monastic. Because being like an angel, the Greek is is angelos, similar to the angels. This was part of the goal of the ancient monks of the east, of the desert. That the monk who had reached true apatheia, true purity of mind, was in a certain sense like the angels, similar to the angels. Uh, so, you know, this part of Cashin's commentary and the use of that phrase of being like the angels is Cashin talking to monks who would say, oh yeah, our life is supposed to make us be like uh, angels. Might not be quite as applicable today, but... Um, <laughs> Forgive us our debts as we forgive those in debt. Cashin makes an original comment here. I'll read. Oh, the unspeakable mercy of God. Not only has he handed us a model of prayer, but he has also given us a discipline which will make us acceptable to him. Hence, if we wish to be judged mercifully at the end, we must be merciful now to those who have done us, done us wrong. Cashin closes his commentary, brief as it is, with uh, two sections in praise of the Our Father. First of all, he notes that the prayer contains no petition for anything transitory or perishable. All of what you ask for in the Our Father is what eternally endures. 
even if you're asking for it in this life in some way, it's not pertaining to this life. It pertains to the relationship between this life and the life to come. And he closes with the following words. It would seem then that this prayer, the Our Father, contains the fullness of perfection. It was the Lord himself who gave it to us as both an example and a rule. It lifts up those making use of it to that prayer of fire, Eratio Ignita, the prayer of fire, known only to a few. So for Cashin, it's the perfect prayer. And the constant repetition of the perfect prayer is a little bit like that formula, God come to my aid, Lord make haste to help me. That is, it's a way into the gift of the fiery prayer you know, that, God, that God sends down. So there is a mystical dimension to the Cashin interpretation. Two more figures. Gerhard Appelmans, A-P-P-E-L-M-A-N-S, Dutch name, wrote a gloss on the Our Father. We don't really know who Appelmans was, but he appears to have been, well, we don't, personally we don't know him, but he appears to have been a forest hermit living in the low countries, living in the present area of Brabant, writing in Middle Dutch. And of course, there's a great flourishing of mysticism in the Low Countries from about the mid-12th century on into the 16th and the 17th century. The best known name is Rusbrook, the Admirable, a 14th century canon, one of the premier mystics in the Christian tradition. But the tradition of the Dutch mystics begins with Hadwig, great Begin, author of visions and letters and various kinds of poetry probably living around the year 1250, a begging. Again, we don't know much about her, but her writings are among the great treasures of the Dutch uh, language and have been uh, very, very much studied. And she's one of, the one of the mystics like John of the Cross, who's equally talented as a poet and as a, as a writer of, of prose. And there are many, many other. Uh, I mean, this is one of the great schools of Christian mysticism it is not as well known because very few people read Dutch, and particularly the earlier, <laughs> the earlier form of Dutch. So it's only, no, it, it's only through translations, first of all into Latin, Rusbrook was translated into Latin and some others, but then in modern era into languages, French and, uh, and English, etc., that we're beginning to uncover the, the tremendous wealth and variety of, these, uh, of, the, of the Dutch, the Low Countries mysticism. And Appelmans is kind of a mystery man. He's a hermit, probably around the year 1300 through 1350. We don't even sure the dates. The only writing of his that we have is this very brief treatise on the Our Father, this gloss on the Our Father. And it has been fortunately translated in a volume called Late Medieval Mysticism of the Low Countries, <laughs> published by Paulus Press in our Classics of Western Spirituality uh, series. But that the gloss, and it only survives in one manuscript, so you know, it's very, very unknown. Uh, but it's a, it's a tremendously rich document. In some ways, it's the most uh, speculatively fascinating of the commentaries on the Our Father, because you could almost, it, it's very close to Eckhart and some of Eckhart's disciples, like John Towler and, uh, and others. In other words, there's a deeply speculative mysticism about the Trinity 
in, in Oppelmann's very brief, uh, very brief gloss. It often reads like it was a kind of sermon because it divides itself into 11 sections. Each of these is started by a question and then the hermit gives his answer. He must have had a very good theological education because of the depth of the theology, particularly the Trinitarian uh, theology. But he also emphasizes the practice. He keeps saying, you've got to keep repeating the Our Father. You have to keep saying it your whole life, like the Blessed Virgin did. And he said, if you repeat the Our Father your whole life from this perspective, this will be a part of, of your, your ongoing path. The dominant message is how the inner life of the Trinity becomes active in the soul's path to union with God. So, saying our Father begins to reveal to you the depth of the Trinitarian relationships, the, the Father giving birth to the Son and the Holy Spirit being the bond of love between them. This is particularly evident in the first uh, couple of sections, the first three sections, and I'll just comment on those briefly so that we can get to uh, Teresa. The first section starts with the question, how do we understand the word Father? How do we understand the word Father? And Appelmann's answer is a kind of commentary on the opening of John's Gospel, the famous prologue. You know, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. So he takes the Johannine prologue with its deep Trinitarian uh, uh, message, and he applies it to the word Father, our Father. Here's what he says. The Father in himself, in the fecundity of his nature, and out of the fecundity of, fecundity of his nature, is speaking the Word, is engendering the Son, in all perfect likeness to himself, and in a fatherly way is recognizing the other person as the son. So the word father reveals the father has a son in the Trinity. And yet more, in that same birth, the universe is being formed. The procession of the son from the father is also in one way the procession of creatures through the activity of the son. That's Eckhart, by the way, that kind of teaching about the parallel between the birth of the Son in the Father and the procession of the universe. So Appelmann says, in this same birth, in the whole omnipotence of the Godhead, the Father is creating for himself, giving life and being to all creatures by his divine fatherly might, maintaining everything that has life and being in a creaturely way. This meditation on the role of the Father as Father in the Trinity and in creation leads Appelmanns to an act of adoration in terms of our deep union with God. When the Father has possessed the whole breadth of the rational spirit and has taken over and absorbed the being and eternity of the spirit and all its powers into the fathomless divinity of his glory's lordship, the spirit sinks from one abyss into another and from something into nothing. Here God becomes the father of his own proper sense, uh, own proper self in the spirit. This is the spirit's true adoration. So the spirit, our spirit, as created, sinking from one abyss into another abyss and becoming from something, our something, the nothingness being merged into the no-thingness of God is a part of the message of the first uh, petition of the Our Father, and that language is directly out of Eckhart. 
by the way. If you look at Eckhart's sermon number 83, it talks about sinking, the soul sinking down from something into nothing. So Appelmann's had some kind of connection with, uh, with Eckhartian uh, uh, mysticism. Um, and I, I could go on in great detail here, but I, I, I won't. Uh, and I'd recommend it, uh, certainly this uh, kind of unknown uh, treatise uh, to you because you can see through this that certain mystics can see in the Our Father itself the very deepest Trinitarian message uh, of, uh, of, of, of John's Gospel. But I want to get to Teresa. So, Teresa. Women were not supposed to be able to deal with scripture and interpret it. They couldn't read it in Latin. They were forbidden, especially in the 16th century, where inquisitorial fear of the dangers posed by mystical women was, of course, very widespread. Teresa had to walk a delicate path to avoid condemnation. Five times during her lifetime, she was being investigated by the Inquisition, but she got off the hook. After her death, the Inquisition spent 10 years examining her writings before they decided to allow them to be published. So it's, it's a complicated story, but Teresa made it through sa safely in that sense. And uh, you know, women were not supposed to deal with the, the Bible. The, uh, vernacular translations of the Bible were forbidden by a rather notorious text, uh, an in, uh, index of uh, prohibited books was published in the year 1559 by the Archbishop of Toledo, a man called Valdez. And it forbade all vernacular translations, and it also forbade all the mystical and spiritual literature that had been translated into Spanish in the first half of the 16th century. Valdez thought that stuff was dangerous for women. This was a crisis for Teresa, actually, the Valdez Index, because she's, you know, she knew a lot of the things that were nourishing her own spiritual life and the life of her sisters was now forbidden. It's where Christ came to the rescue. You can read it in her life. Christ appears to her and says, don't worry, I will give you a living book. I'll give you a living book. Teresa's puzzled, you know, what is this living book? But she realizes that Christ will be giving her the mystical graces that will enable her to understand and write for her sisters, the nuns in her community, the message that they no longer have access to in the scriptures or in the writings of former mystics that Valdez had prohibited. Um, and one of the things that Teresa then does is she begins to comment on scripture surreptitiously in a sense because it's very much against the, uh, against, uh, the spirit of the times and the Valdez Index. And so Teresa writes a Meditations on the Song of Songs, 1566 through 1572. Not a whole commentary, can't do that, but she says, I'm just gonna say a few things from my sisters that I have learned, or God has taught me about verses from the Song of Songs as I hear them in the liturgy and, uh, and elsewhere. And I think I mentioned her, one of her confessors got her to destroy it, but she'd sent copies out already so we, it survives to this day. And in this Meditations on the Song of Songs, there is the first defense known to me of a woman as a scriptural exegete. Teresa, in the first chapter, takes up the question, well, how, how can I, as a woman, comment on scriptures? I'm, I'm not supposed to be able to do that. Her defense has two poles to it, two uh, aspects to it. First of all, she says um, that uh, 
Yeah, we can't neglect the, the learned exegetes, and we have to recognize that they give us the full, the full meaning uh, of scripture. Um, but the primary uh, virtue that you need to have for interpreting scripture is humility, not learning. Humility. And so she said, well, the Blessed Virgin was the greatest interpreter of scripture because he was the most humble. And we nuns try also to emulate humility. The second thing that she takes up is many of these fathers have told me, well, you know, um, these texts are very, very difficult. She says, oh, I, I know they're very, very difficult. They're very difficult for women. They're also difficult for men. <laughs> but I'll do my best <laughs> in the light, uh, you know, the, the, the graces that have been uh, given uh, to me. However, uh, at around the same time that she began the commentary, the meditations on the Song of Songs, she also incorporated a commentary, a long commentary, fairly long, 60, 70 pages, on the Our Father in a work that she was writing called The Way of Perfection. The Way of Perfection. Some of you may have read that, but it's not as popular as Her Life or The Interior Castle. But The Way of Perfection was what her nuns asked her to do to explain the new life of the Reformed Carmelites. She had started the new Carmelite reform in 1562. She already, in one house in Avila, St. Joseph, it was already spreading to a few other houses, and the nuns were asking her, well, you know, we need to know more about how you think we should live this, this new life. And so, as a result of the requests of the sisters, she says, okay, I'm, I'm gonna write this book, The Way of Perfection. And she got permission from her confessor, great theologian, Dominican theologian, Domingo Bañez, to write that. Because it was pretty much an in-house book. The nuns needed it. Banya says, okay, yeah, the nuns need it. Yes, you should write all that up. So we have the way of perfection. It exists in, uh, in three or four different versions. And I'll give you a brief sense of the structure and a few comments on the, uh, the Our Father part, uh, part of, the, uh, of the text. Why did she include a uh, commentary on the Our Father? because she said the monks, the, the inquisitors can't take that away from us, very explicitly. We've got the Our Father, we've got the Hail Mary. They've taken everything else away, but I'm gonna show you, you can get what you need out of these prayers. She never got to write the commentary on the Hail Mary in, in the work, why we don't know, but she includes this long commentary on the meaning of the Our Father. So, just briefly. Um, in, the, in this book, and I strongly advise you to read it, she introduces the reform. Then she spends chap this, chapters one through three. Chapters four through 15, she talks about the three foundations of a sound prayer life. Because prayer life was essential to the reform. The reform fixed a lot of the abuses. It uh, did many things about the ascetical life of the community, but the reformed Convents of the Discals were primarily houses of prayer, particularly interior prayer, because she felt that the regular Carmelite order didn't allow enough of that. So this is a treatise on how to pray, in a sense. Three foundations for a sound prayer life, love of, God, love of neighbor, detachment, and humility. Then she launches into a treatise on prayer, that constitutes the major portion of the work. These are chapters 16 through 42. 
The first two chapters, 16, three chapters, 16 through 18, introduce contemplative prayer and discuss the difference between pure mental prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Contemplation, which she sees as a divine gift. Chapters 9 through 26 then talk about prayer in general, a kind of introduction. And she says, you know, since no one can take away the books of the Our Father and Hail Mary, she intends to explain the progress of prayer according to these familiar prayers and clarifies further the difference between mental prayer and vocal prayer. And she says that you need both. She's not against vocal prayer. But she insists that mental prayer and the gift of contemplation is crucial. And she has this interesting passage. She says that contemplation may occur in the middle of vocal prayer. I quote, I tell you, it is very possible while you are reciting the Our Father or some other vocal prayer, the Lord may raise you up to perfect contemplation. The soul understands that without the noise of words, the Divine Master is teaching it by suspending the faculties. So for Teresa, in vocally praying the Our Father in a very serious way, you may indeed ascend to contemplative, uh, to contemplative uh, uh, moments. Um, so the final part of the way to perfection contains this commentary on the Our Father, petition by petition, and Teresa ties that to our own notion of three stages of prayer in the progress to mystical union. And here it's very close in some ways to the earlier life, but she's adopted it a little bit and shows how the Our Father teaches the same message. So the three stages are, first of all, you start with recollection or mental prayer in which we cooperate with God then you pass on to what she calls the prayer of quiet. The prayer of quiet where the senses and the mind and the other powers are stilled. And here this comes about through primarily through grace, not through your own efforts. And finally you arrive at the third stage of prayer, what she calls the prayer of union, which she identifies with, with contemplation. So just quickly here, as in closing off, the first phrase, Our Father who art in heaven, chapters 27, 29, teaches the prayer of recollection. And uh, Teresa's life also viewed meditative recollection as preparing the soul for the higher stages of prayer. What she teaches here is that an insidious, careful practice of recollecting the senses in meditation is necessary to prepare the soul for the higher transfusions of divine grace. She says, this recollection is not something supernatural. That means it's not just the gift of God in that sense. But it is something we can desire and achieve with the help of God. It is not yet a silence of the faculties, but it's an enclosure of the faculties of the soul. It's recollecting them from outside disturbances into the soul itself. The next phrase is the second stage of prayer. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. This is the prayer of quiet, which Teresa says is something supernatural, something we cannot procure through our own efforts. In it, the soul enters into peace, or better, the Lord puts it at peace in his presence. And here she sees, as others did, the presence of the Trinity within the soul, 
as the three powers of memory, intellect, and will are, are stilled by the action of grace. Finally, or finally in terms of the prayer stages, thy will be done equate is the highest stage of prayer, the prayer of union, total surrender of the will to God in which he draws us into contemplation and even rapture. Again, I quote, O my sisters, remember she's addressing it to the nuns, O my sisters, what strength lies in this gift? It does nothing less when accompanied by the necessary determination than draw the Almighty so that he becomes one with us in our lowliness, transforms himself into us, and effects a union of creator with the creature. Not content with having made the soul one with himself, he begins to find his delight in it, reveal his secrets to it, and rejoice that it knows that it has gained what it has gained, and something of what he will give it further in heaven. He makes it lose these exterior senses so that nothing will disturb it. This is rapture. This is rapture, which Teresa, of course, had experienced and, and, and written about. So you have a detailed theory of prayer now explained in terms of the Our Father. Well, because there's more of the Our Father here, and Teresa uses the later chapters and the remaining petitions to teach other aspects of the life of the nun. Uh, give us this day our daily bread, for her is Eucharistic. That's our closest contact possible with Christ. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. She gets very practical here. This is about forgiveness and not thinking about your personal honor. One of the biggest problems that Teresa had with her nuns and the whole church was the Spanish notion of honor and the gradations of societies you know, between nobility and the, and the merchants and the others, etc. Uh, Spanish society ran on that. Teresa insisted, you can't do that in the, in the convent. So that she's very concerned that the sisters, the aristocratic ones, don't look down upon the ones who are not aristocrats. Uh, and then, of course, uh, the later uh, phrases teach love and fear of God. Freedom from evil is not total freedom from evil. Here this sounds like our friend Origen. It's the acceptance of the fact that temptation is always with us and self-knowledge is always necessary. She concludes, and I'll conclude, uh, towards the end by talking about the, the nobility and the profundity of this prayer. She says, the Our Father, certainly it never entered my mind that this prayer contains so many deep secrets. For now you have seen the entire spiritual way contained in it, from the beginning stages until God engulfs the soul and gives it to drink abundantly from the fount of living waters, which he said was to be found at the end of our path. So it is the prayer for Teresa. And that concludes this last of the lectures. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.